You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. We just returned from the Plain Talk about Literacy and Learning Conference in New Orleans and learned so much. This episode elevates our takeaways about structured literacy and learning from the Plain Talk Conference. Let's jump in. Hi, teacher friends. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two educators who want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. We worked together in Baltimore when the district adopted a new literacy curriculum. We realized there was so much more to learn about how to teach reading and writing. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning with you today. My name is Jen, and my biggest takeaway from the Plain Talk conference is that the learning journey is lifelong. At any session you went to, you could run into speakers from other sessions sitting in on their colleagues learning new things. And that reminded me that the learning is lifelong and to never stop learning, no matter how far along in my career I am, I can always learn something new. Hi, my name is Melissa, and my biggest takeaway from Plain Talk, I actually have two. It was so amazing to be able to sit in and listen to uh, Dr. Airy talk about her work and then her additional suggestions on how to move students in instruction, and then Dr. Cable's emphasis on the importance of conversation and um, five critical turns you can make. Hi, my name is Elise Lovejoy, and I'm calling because I attended a session by Lorraine Hammond, and she had an incredible presentation on um, the urgency and prompting that needs to happen in our classes. And during my intervention sessions today, I required the kids to respond more often and at a faster pace. It was very successful, and I very much appreciated listening to her talk about how all children can read no matter, can learn to read no matter the zip code that they live in. We are debriefing the Plain Talk conference today, sharing what we learned from speakers and sessions. So Melissa, I know this is so exciting because we just got back from the conference and learned so much. Yeah, from New Orleans, which is one of my favorite places. So Yeah, you used to teach there. I did. I used to teach there and live there, obviously. (laughs) So yeah, it was so fun to be in New Orleans, but we learned so much. I mean, by the end, I was, my brain was full, for sure. (laughs) All the way full. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was exhausted from uh, my brain working overtime. But we are going to recap our sessions today that we learned or that we that we were in and learned so much in. Some of them. We should say that. I mean, yeah, we'd be here all day if we did all of them. <laughs> we chose a sampling and we tried to vary our choices. <laughs> but we saw a lot and learned a lot. So you want to kick us off, Lori? I'd love to. So I saw a session titled Building Stronger Readers Through Spelling with Pam Kastner. And my favorite thing that came out of this session was this takeaway. When you're teaching spelling, you're teaching 
reading. Spelling is a window into reading needs and also I should say reading strengths. Strengths. So um, that's really helpful. I also appreciated that Pam sent everyone from the session on the way with a Padlet with resources. I feel like she really gets teachers knowing that everybody wants to learn after the session. Um, so, you know, when you can spell a word, you can read a word, but the opposite isn't always true. And she took us through a little exercise where we all thought we were excellent readers and spellers. And then we realized, oh, we, we can't spell some really tricky words like fuchsia, <laughs> but we can read them. Um, and if we are going to implement a spelling scope and sequence to align with, with what we're doing, um, it should be least complex to most complex and most frequent to least frequent. So that was a great takeaway and something really important, um, I think, for teachers to know and for practitioners in the classroom, if you're teaching spelling, to have that in mind. Um, and, you know, can, of course, connect it to what you're doing, uh, not random acts of spelling here, and, you know, keep it connected to morphology, to uh, your phonics skills. Um, she did also provide a routine called a simultaneous oral spelling and SOS a routine for teachers and students to help students focus on the individual sounds in words. So I'll run through that quickly. And then Melissa, you can let me know if you have any questions. Sure. So step one, the student watches the teacher's mouth to see the way sounds are produced. So I guess if you think about it during the COVID pandemic, this is <laughs> right. Like when we think about all the kids who had uh, went through there. Then with the masks, that would be really tricky. Um, step two, students repeat the word to stimulate the articulators and look in the mirror. Students map sounds to fingers or chips. So they might move chips or hold their fingers up or tap. Um, student writes the word, spells the word. And then student says the word back to the teacher. So a really uh, simple protocol where students are uh, getting lots of reps, repetitions, and practice. Um, Pam also mentioned that more morpheme matrices are helpful tools as well. So I I know that we're big fans of those uh, too, Melissa. So for sure, yeah. yeah. And it sounds like I mean, what you just went through that was simultaneous oral spelling. Is that yeah? SOS SOS. <laughs> um, but it reminds me of our recent conversation with Matt Burns, who's talking about connecting that phonemic awareness with letters. And it sounds like that happens very quickly here, right? That you, you let the child hear quickly, but then you are immediately attaching those letters. <clears throat> so they, they're not just hearing the sounds, but they're also connecting it to the letters too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Melissa, I know we sat in the another session together and I, I wondered if you wanted to kick us off for that one. Yeah, so this is um, one of our friends of the podcast, Sonia Cabell, who very funnily, I was walking down the stairs um, before her session. So it was the day before and someone yells, Melissa, and so excited. And I felt I didn't recognize her at first because there's like a million people at this conference. And it, so it took me a minute and then I was like, oh my gosh, Sonia Cabell. I was so excited um, because we love her. I forget what episode number she is. But yeah, it was so fun to like meet her in person. She's she's wonderful. And so she has a new book out with Trisha Zucker um, called Strive for Five. Is the rest of it what the title of the conference session was? The conference session was Strive for Five Conversations to Build Language Comprehension in Preschool through First Grade. I'm guessing that's the title of the book as well. Um, the book is 
Strive for Five Conversations, a framework that gets kids talking to accelerate their language comprehension and literacy. So actually, it's different, but Strive for Five is the <laughs> Strive for Five, Sonia Cavill, Trisha Zucker, you'll find it. Um, but it was really great. I think, I think going into it, I knew I was like, okay, Strive for Five, you want to have five back and forth turns with someone while you're having a conversation seems easy enough. But I loved how she talked about why, right? That was a big thing was like, well, why do we care about doing this? Um, And I have, I have my five-year-old. So he was in my head the whole time. And it made so much sense that like, this is how you can really like build these, like having one conversation on one topic and building language and building vocabulary um, really makes a lot of sense as a teacher. And I loved how she talked about it as just like, a marginal shift, which I was like, yes, that's so good. Because I think so often we want, you know, (laughs) we want that like thing that's going to change everything. And it's going to be this huge, big new thing. And I love that she's, it's just little, it's just a little shift in the way you do things. It's not like going to totally disrupt (laughs) what you're doing in the classroom. Just a little tiny shift in how you are talking to your students, asking questions, responding to their questions, so, or responding to their answers to questions. So I just thought that was excellent. I also loved that she brought up the idea of good job as a conversation stopper. And I am like, I'm guilty of this too all the time. So don't feel bad if you're doing it because I do it all the time with, with my son. You know, it's just like, oh, look at this thing I made, mom. And you're like, that's great nice work. (laughs) And it is just like, that's the end of the conversation right there. You know, so it's so nice to think about that. Like, okay, how do you keep that going? Right? Instead of just that good job and stopping the conversation. Yeah. And I really connected that as, as an, to, to that as an adult too. Um, and I'll give an example. Like if I walked into, actually, I feel like I did this, Melissa, I walked into your house, um, before you moved and, you, you know, you, I, that was the first time I'd been there in a while and you had done some things. And instead of being like, wow, this is so nice. I think I asked you some questions about it. And I was intentionally doing that because I had learned, uh, the skill <laughs> and then I was practicing it. Um, but if I had been like, wow, this is so nice. You'd have been like, yeah, thanks. And the conversation would be over versus, you know, oh, how did you think to choose this color on your wall? Or why did you select this artwork? Or, you know, where did you get your furniture from? Or what's the vibe you went for in here? It opens it up and it's the same for kids. And you know, I was thinking of that. I would say especially even more for kids, right? Because I mean, as an adult, you could give me that just, oh, this looks great. And I might add on to it, right? <laughs> like <laughs> Because I'm an adult, but it's unlikely that a four-year-old, five-year-old, even six-year-old, like the our youngest learners are going to like have those conversation techniques to be able to add on. (laughs) Sure. And what I really liked about this too, is that it really does extend not just for ELA, but to all content areas and and all areas really. I mean, even think about art, you know, I mean, if a child's making a piece of artwork in art class, instead of walking by and saying, great job, that's nice. You ask like, how did you think to draw this? How did you think to create that? And and really modeling those inquisitive, curious questions, and I mean, I, kids want to tell you about about it. And you know, I've tried this at home with press, and I think only one time in the history of me asking her all of these questions, she's she said like, 
I don't know. I just did. And outside of that, I, I, I pretty much always get a really great response back that then prompts me to ask another question and, and does forge the conversation forward. So it's exciting to think about moving the conversations forward and to strive for five and why that is important that those five interactions over time become really, really meaningful for uh, kids' language and uh, language comprehension. Yeah. And just, just to like stamp those five, you know, you're, the teacher is the first turn, right? So the asking that open-ended question. And then the, the student responds however they respond, right? And it might even be, like you just said, Lori, a, it might be a response like, I don't know, I just did, right? But you can still take that to your, you know, your next turn could be like, okay, you know, she called this scaffolding down, right? Like, the, so you might need to scaffold that to like, okay, well, did you do it because of this reason? Or did you do it for this reason, right? Maybe give them some options if they weren't able to explain themselves. So you give them another chance to 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 talk about it. But if they do give a an actual response, then you scaffold it up and right, you might take it to the next level. Like, oh, what made you think of that? Or like, how does that connect to something else you've done? This other painting you did the other day, you know, so you can take it to another place. Um, and then you know, let, let the student respond again. That's the fourth turn. Um, and then the wrap up, I, I liked that. I always felt like that last, you know, time the teacher got to say something was the, the place you might like be able to like add in some vocabulary, like, oh, that sounds like this thing that we've been talking about in class and, and connecting it and making it just, just kind of putting a stamp on it at the end of the conversation. Yeah. And I think if you're curious about this, uh, when Sonia's book, and Trisha's book does come out because I think it's on, it's it out or on pre-order. I'm pretty sure it's out already. Okay. So we will get that information for you in a moment, but uh, there are videos that go along with it. And so that is super helpful. If you would like to see this in action. It is out. It's you out. Get it by tomorrow okay. on Amazon. <gasps> I wasn't sure if it was out or pre-order. All right. So on to the next session. Uh, I saw another friend of the podcast, Doug Fisher called Interactive Read Alouds Done Right. Uh, he based this on a 2004 piece um, and then added onto it, which kind of made it really fun and special. Um, the 2004 piece was called Interactive Read Alouds. Is there a common set of implementation practices? It was by Fisher, Fry, and Lepp. Um, and Doug's original piece called out seven non-negotiables for an interactive read aloud. That there's a clear purpose established, that there's a text selection that obviously is like meaningful and 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 worthy. Um, pre- that we're previewing and practicing the read aloud as teachers, as practitioners. Um, that students are doing some sort of independent reading and writing connected to it. That we are modeling fluent reading and being animated and uh, having expression. And that we are discussing the text and students are discussing the texts. I'm sorry, the text. <laughs> um, and then this in this presentation, Doug added three more to update. So he added print referencing. So giving the students an opportunity to see the text and reference the text, that that's an important feature. Um, again, that word that we just talked about a whole lot with Sonia, scaffolds coming up. Um, so scaffolds work when students have a mental model of success. Um, and that so they know what they're doing. The purpose is clear. <laughs> the goal of this read aloud is clear and everybody understands the end goal. 
Um, and the third thing is think alouds from the teacher. Doug likes to call them think alongs. And I thought that was fun. Um, and he also, of course, is like the king of you know, gradual release model, um, gradual release of responsibility. So one thing I thought would be really important to note, because Doug talked about it quite a bit, is that he said, anywhere in that gradual release model, you can start anywhere in there. Does You don't have to start with the I do, we do, you do. It's not linear. So as you're doing a read aloud, you know, you might want um, students to begin by talking about something to review a concept. Well, that's kind of like the you do, right? Or the we do, <laughs> Um, depending on how it looks. And then you might come back together, read aloud, model, and then kind of release some responsibility and come back. So it doesn't have to be this linear process in the gradual release, but here's the key. Close the loop every day. It has to close. You, you can't leave it open. It can't be, I do, we do, or you do, I do. <laughs> we have to do all of those steps um, to bring the gradual release to a full circle in the interactive read aloud and just, I think, generally speaking uh, in the bigger picture, but um, for the case of this session in the interactive read aloud. And I'm assuming that would kind of be driven by the text. You know, like if I was, if I was planning a read aloud, I know that places I would want to model would be driven by the text, right? Like where, where is it that I want to show them something tricky about the text or the vocabulary is tough or some, something that I want to show them (laughs) Um, versus, you know, where, where do I think I can just ask them a question here and we can talk about it. Um, so did he talk about that? Is that, am I on the right track? He did. Yes. But, um, I also, I'll, I'll kind of, um, share that in another session. So I, I don't know why I was really into read alouds, this plain talk. And I saw, uh, Molly Ness, who, another friend of the podcast speak about read alouds. Episode 170. Episode 170. And Doug was 158. <laughs> um, Oh, we have to give Sonia's old episode. Do you know that number by heart? No, but I can find it. Hang on. We'll find it out. Um, So in the session with Molly Ness, she uh, talked about how we should pause for eight to 10 think alouds, right? Modeling um, our metacognitive strategies, modeling what we're thinking for our students, modeling uh, oh, you know, I'm really confused here. I'm going to pause and stop and reread. Oh, I noticed this vocabulary word. That's an interesting word. I wonder if it's talking about this character. I wonder what so-and-so meant by that. So really getting metacognitive and just kind of saying what we're thinking about eight to 10 times throughout a text uh, or throughout a read aloud. I'm sorry. Um, because I think it, if we're reading uh, a text that is a little bit longer for our older students, we would do it eight to 10 times throughout that read aloud. Uh, and with our younger students, eight to 10 times throughout a text or a read aloud. That makes sense, Melissa. Yeah, that makes sense. And Sonia Cabell is 116, episode 116. Cool. All right, we'll link all these in the show notes. Um, the next session I went to was about fluency, which you know is one of my favorite topics. Um, and the speakers were Marianne Wolf and Melissa Orkin. Um, Marianne Wolf, who we're both familiar with, um, I've read Proust and the Squid, and we I know we listened to her on an NPR show and maybe something else. Um, and and I'm just going to be honest, we're like a little intimidated by Marianne Wolf because she is extremely intelligent. <laughs> very, very smart lady. <laughs> a very smart lady. Not um, that no one else is because they really are. Oh, no, I know. But I mean, yeah. I mean, when when Proust is in your title of your book, you know, you're <laughs> you're a smart, smart lady. So 
I was very pleased that she's hilarious. <laughs> and she made it very easy to understand. So I was like, oh, thank goodness. Because um, my brain was like not ready for <laughs> super heavy material. Um, but their session was called The Future of Fluency, Instructional Strategies that Reflect the Reading Circuit. Um, and they talked a lot about just the you know, amount of students, the number of students that they see all the time, they said it's usually around 70% of students that have fluency issues, right, that need more support with fluency. Um, but what they said is what happens often is like we we do the the regular things for fluency, which is aren't none of these things are bad. They weren't saying what you're doing is bad, <clears throat> you know, but repeated readings, the you know, choral reading and echo reading, all of those, all of those things that are really good for fluency. But they said, we might want to dig a little bit deeper too, right? So in addition to those, you might want to think about that this fluency issue just doesn't like stand on its own, right? So it's not not like there are other things that affect a student being able to read fluently and we need to think about them all because they all come together. Um, So here, here was one way that Marianne Wolf was <laughs> very smart. So they talked about their multi-componential unit, um, <laughs> right? Multi-componential. Um, the, the, the way of, of teaching fluency was, is multi-componential, and that helps to build the circuit. And you might be familiar with the acronym POSSUM, P-O-S-S-U-M. I know you are, Lori. I am. <laughs> I know you. Only because... Uh, I read an article about possum, but I don't know if anybody else is familiar with possum other than the animal, right? <laughs> Which is a helpful way to remember it. Um, but those are the those are the different components. So when we're talking about the different components that might affect a student's fluency, these are these are the different components. So one is just phoneme awareness, right? So making sure that students are actually hearing the right sounds, right? So that's a place to start. Orthographic awareness that they're connecting those sounds to the letters correctly. Um, so, you know, you're like, yes, this is just phonemic awareness and phonics instruction. Yes, but some students might still be having struggles with that, which is affecting their fluency. So that's something to think about. But then the S's are semantic word meaning and syntactic knowledge, which is, which is sentence level meaning, um, which this was really interesting to me because I, I don't think we often connect Meaning, and actually, I'll throw in the M here too, which is morphology, which is the knowledge of the the meaning of word parts. Um, so all of those have to do with like the meaning. Um, and and you know, you kind of think of it as well. If a student can decode, they have down that phonemic awareness and the orthographic awareness. What do they, do they need to know the meaning for fluency? Yes, absolutely, they do. And they gave a really cool example um, with two words: one lime. And the other word, lion. Um, and they said, even though lime is technically easier to read in terms of like just L-I-M-E, right? It's pretty straightforward. Lion is a little trickier, the way the I and the O make that lion sound. But because lion is such a, for kids, lion is like a more familiar term. They they understand what a lion is. Not all kids might have seen a lime. They don't talk about limes that often, maybe. Maybe some kids do, but a lot of kids don't, right? It's not something that um, kids see as much, that they actually can read the word lion quicker than they can read lime, which I just thought was really interesting that like because they have more familiarity with it, they have more of a meaning, then they can actually 
they can actually read it faster. So their fluency is faster when they have more connections to the meaning of the word, which I just thought was really cool. That is really neat. And the U is understanding. Thank you. Thank Very you. easy. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So that was that was their multi-components and how just thinking about fluency as more than just word calling and rereading and, and thinking about all the different components that go into a student being a fluent reader. Cool. Did I tell you that I turned around and saw both Marianne Wolf and Melissa Orkin at dinner one night? No, you didn't. Yeah. Um, and I also heard somebody yell, Margaret. And I was like, that's got to be Margaret Goldberg. There's not other Margaret. There's no other Margaret. Yes. From the Right to Read Project. So I, of course, ran over. It's like, Margaret, that's you. Uh, and we, So I met some former guests which in person, which was so nice. Um, and Lonnie from the same episode as Margaret. That was really awesome. Um, that was a while back. Um, and then I also met uh, Amir Baraka, who wrote was dyslexic, wrote a book about his experience uh, growing up uh, with dyslexia. And it was just such a, that was a night where I just feel like I was overwhelmed with meeting people and my brain was even more on overload. <laughs> we talked about him um, with Julie and Sherry in mm-hmm. last summer. Yeah. We talked, we talked about him on their episode. Yeah, we did. We're going to have to link all these episodes in the show notes. Okay. So I think one last session we want to talk about is Denise Eide. Which we both got to go to. We did. It was really fun. (laughs) And the title is, Is It Time to Rethink the Definition of Phonics? Uh, My big takeaway, English is logical. So logical. I loved learning about it. I was pumped for all of these cool rules that I didn't learn, all of these morphology things that I didn't know before. So good. She's great. If you don't, if you have not read Uncovering the Logic of English, now is the time to pick it up. I know. And you, did you know that Corey Jensen recommended that to us in his episode, which was many episodes ago? I don't remember that. I know. So we took a while to get on board. <laughs> And we are telling you that you should not wait as long as we did. You should not wait. (laughs) Because it is well worth it. Um, And it it really is just, I mean, so logical, right? And when you hear it, you know, to hear things like, yes, you know, the, yeah, there is a reason that there's an E on the end sometimes. And it's not because it changes the vowel sound, right? Sometimes it's words can't end in V or U. So they just have an E on the end. (laughs) (laughs) for sure and it just explains it you're like there you go there's your explanation for so many words yeah so uh, okay I'll give you an example I just I followed logic of English on Instagram and love how they put their their rules up and the different uh, things we should know so C always softens to S when followed by E I or Y otherwise C says K and that explains circle and circus (laughs) <laughs> and cylinder <laughs> and cat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And all of the rules are also on her website, which is so if you, you know, not ready to get the book or dive into that, you can go to logicofenglish.com. And she she is not trying to, you know, make money off things. She's trying to share <laughs> information. So she puts all the rules there, too. So, you don't you know, don't even have to buy the book. You can just go there and see all of the rules. But if you want more, buy the book for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very good read. Yeah. So we have um, some new friends of the podcast after that conference. It was so nice to make new friends and uh, just kind of catch up with everyone. It was really fun to meet 
our listeners, a lot of our listeners were like, oh my gosh, you're Melissa and Lori because we had our sweatshirts on. <laughs> so that was really fun. And um, can we say that we recorded with Denise Ide and she's going to be on soon? Yeah, she's going to be on really soon. We yeah, just recorded so ready. With her after. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we can't wait for you to hear that conversation. She always blows my mind. So love it. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Melissa. I'm glad we got to do this. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Lori. To stay connected with us, sign up for our email list at literacypodcast.com. Join our Facebook group and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If this episode resonated with you, take a moment to share with a teacher friend or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just a quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds PBC or its employees. We appreciate you so much, and we're so glad you're here to learn with us.